You're listening to Four Advisors, the podcast for and about financial advisors. This program is for educational purposes only, and the opinions expressed here by guests do not necessarily fully or accurately reflect the opinions, legal intent, or nature of Congress Wealth Advisor Solutions, Congress Wealth Management LLC, or their senior management. Please note that Congress Wealth Advisor Solutions is a division of Congress Wealth Management LLC. Congress Wealth Management LLC is an SEC RIA based in Boston, Massachusetts. For additional information about Congress Wealth Management LLC, please visit our website at www.congresswealth.com or visit the Investment Advisor Public Disclosure website at www.advisorinfo.sec.gov by searching with Congress's CRD number 310873. Congress Wealth Advisor Solutions, Congress Wealth Management LLC, and their senior management believe this information in this program to be accurate and reliable but does not warrant it as to completeness or accuracy. Due to rapidly changing market conditions and the complexity of investment decisions, supplemental information and other sources may be required to make informed investment decisions based on your individual investment objectives and suitability specifications. This program is not intended to give legal, investment, or financial planning advice and opinions and statements made in this podcast should not be relied on as such. No portion of this program is to be construed as a solicitation to buy or sell a security or the provision of personalized investment tax or legal advice. Investing entails the risk of loss of principal. Hello, and welcome to Four Advisors, the podcast for and about financial advisors. I'm your host, Peter McGrady. Today, we have something a bit more in-depth for you, especially if your interests lie more closely on the investment management side of the ledger. Joining us today are Carl Noble, Senior VP of Investments, and Sora Locatelli, Director of Quantitative Research at Congress Wealth Management and Congress Wealth Advisor Solutions. Carl and Soro recently authored a peer-reviewed white paper in the Financial Planning Association's journal, about how style exposure, sector rotation, and the business cycle can be employed to improve investment returns, something which they have been doing for the clients at Congress Wealth Management since 2002. Gentlemen, welcome back to the program. Hi, Pete. It's good to be here again. Thanks, Pete. So, guys, let's get uh, a quick background on how all this came about. Tell me how you got started putting together the research and analysis to be able to create something like this. Sure, well, this is really kind of the culmination of a lot of work really over almost a 20 year period at this point in terms of our entrance into sort of the active management approach or or strategy in in terms of portfolio management. Um, And one of the things I think we noticed pretty early on was our version of active management you know, looked in our view different than what a lot of other people, certainly in this industry, were doing in terms of their portfolios. Um, and so, you know, at this point, we've we've managed through several market cycles, um, and we just thought that, like I said, we've accumulated a wealth of knowledge in terms of using a sector rotation type of approach as part of um, uh, an equity allocation within a portfolio. 
Um, and we, you know, according to the numbers, which I think we're going to get into today, you know, we think that there's there's value that can be added in terms of implementing this as part of an, an overall portfolio uh, for people to use. Um, so, you know, really that that's kind of the background on, um, you know, where this paper sort of the, the genesis for it came from. That's fantastic. Uh, it's, it's unusual that folks who are publishing in the academic arena are able to talk about what they've actually been doing with clients over the years. But even so, you know, it's not an easy uh, it's not an easy do to get approved in a peer reviewed publication where other people are sort of taking apart your observations and conclusions uh, before being approved to be published. Talk to me a little bit about the process of putting this all together. Uh, and who is actually uh, a good candidate for uh, for getting published in a manner like this? Yeah, sure. I can start just by saying the idea for the paper, um, interestingly enough, we really started out with this back in, I think it was late 2019, um, where, where we kind of were kicking around ideas and, and, and decided that this was something that we wanted to pursue. Um, and then obviously the pandemic hit in early 2020 and like a lot of other things, um, you know, diff, uh, we, we got delayed in terms of a writing schedule, having it reviewed, um, that sort of thing. So, um, lo- you know, long story short, we were, we were very excited earlier this year to kind of finally make it over the finish line and actually get this, this paper published um, because it was in the works for, you know, at least a year and a half, if not a little bit longer than that. Um, and so that's, you know, uh, gives you a little bit of background of just the process of this. And, um, you know, but there were a lot of other things that went into it too. Well, let's get into the meat of this. I mean, it's what everybody's here to find out about. Um, tell us the basic premise of the paper and, and maybe give us a little background on, uh, on what you did in terms of putting together this, uh, this thesis for everybody. Sure, maybe I can jump in here. Um, so there's basically two components to this paper. The first one is, uh, as the title says, it's about the intersection between style investing and sector investing. And you know, basically, the premise is when you know when we look out there at the universe of you know mutual funds and um, you know ETFs and investment approaches in general that we see out there. Uh, there's a whole lot of, of investors that focus on style. And when, when we talk about style, we think, you know, we're referring to, um, for instance, value invested, investing versus growth investing versus momentum investing, uh, different factors that investors can employ uh, to, um, you know, to, um, to um, sort of, you know, set up their portfolio. Um, and then at the other side of the spectrum, there's sector investing where investors focus on investing in particular sectors and industries. Uh, but the way that we look at things, we see a pretty strong link between the two approaches. And um, as we um, we were reviewing the, uh, the research out there on academic papers, and we couldn't find much out there that spoke about this intersection between these two approaches and so we thought this would be a chance for us to add to the uh, to the existing research that was out there um, and then the second component of the paper uh, was about how we can uh, employ this knowledge of um, you know style investing and and sector investing um, in, in a hypothetical sector rotation strategy that looks at different phases of the business cycle and tries to position the portfolio in a way that is uh, is beneficial uh, to performance. 
Um, so I think uh, I think that's the, the those are the main two components of the paper. Uh, Carl, is there anything you want to add? No, I think you covered it pretty well. And I, I, like I said earlier, I think one of the maybe the other um, secondary premises was just to again let people know that there are different approaches out there. As you mentioned, I think our experience has been that you know a lot of the industry does look at portfolio construction through the lens of style, um, whether it's value versus growth or even market cap, large versus small and that kind of thing. And, you know, our lens, as we said, has always been more through uh, a sector type of lens as opposed to looking at it that way. So, you know, that that was the other kind of point of the paper was to maybe even get people to think a little bit differently about how they're constructing their portfolios. That's very interesting. Now, we've got a pretty sophisticated audience and a lot of people may intuitively have an understanding of what you're talking about. But for purposes of uh, those who may not be as familiar with some of the, the language, perhaps you could talk a little bit about uh, uh, investing by style and investing by sector with, with and perhaps a, 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 a practical example of how this might work uh, would be helpful and instructional for them. Yeah, I mean, maybe um, w- when it comes to style, we can, um, you know, it's st- style investing has been around for decades, really. It goes back to the um, to the historical, you know, Fama French research on the, um, you know, the three um, the, the three factor model from Fama French, uh, and what they found back in the, um, you know, I believe it's uh, we're going back to the seventies, is that. Um, you know, there's not when we look when you look at the market. Um, there's not just one factor, which is beta, which is um, you know what the capital asset pricing model was um, was essentially saying at that time. But there are additional factors that we can consider to be sources of risk. And the two first one that they identified were the size factor, so based on uh, small capitalization on the market capitalization of small companies. And then the value factor, which looks at the essentially the valuation or the as measured by the price to book ratio of companies. What they found was that even after adjusting for beta, um, you know, smaller capitalization companies and companies with a lower price to book ratio, so with a lower valuation, tended to outperform uh, over longer periods of time. And so these came to be known as as uh, as tiles. Uh, and um, investors begin to focus on these additional features of stocks that go beyond their beta. Uh, and um, since then, uh, many, many more different factors and styles have been have been discovered and employed by investors. But those were the two um, the two big ones that got it started. Um, and, I, and I think for a lot of practitioners, that got popularized by sort of Morningstar and their the style box, which I think virtually everyone is familiar with these days. And so, again, as uh, as a matter of kind of portfolio structure, a lot of it boiled down to sort of filling up the different boxes in that nine grid style box that, that again, I think everyone is familiar with, you know, working, you know, left to right value blend and growth or, or uh, vertically, whether it's large, mid and small. Um, but, in, you know, in our view, one of the differences um, in, in taking more of a sector driven approach is that you know there's a lot of overlap uh, between these different boxes in terms of sector exposures. Um, so one of the things in the paper we did was kind of break that down and then talk about you know uh, the, the, sort of the approach that we take, which is which is much more sector driven, as I said.
Interesting. So what you're saying is we're taking an existing uh, style-focused phenomenon that people have studied for a long, long time and highlighting the fact that there's an additional uh, uh, an additional set of analysis that can be applied because those those traditional styles uh, impact are, are relevant to a number of different parts of the business cycle. And you want to highlight that by applying the business cycle, you can get some additional value add. Am I, is it something like that? Yeah, exactly. Um, you know, I think the evidence shows that, you know, over longer periods of time um, that pursuing a sector driven approach, like I mentioned earlier, can add value. Um, and we talk about that um, in, in great detail in the paper. Um, and as you said, I think a lot of this boils down to, in our view, where, you know, where the economy is in its cycle sort of overlapping with a market cycle. Um, and we talk about how people can try to evaluate that in, in real time using some of the popular economic indicators that are out there. But certainly, I think historical experience shows that different parts of the market, different sectors behave differently depending on where you are. Are you early in an economic cycle? Are you kind of in the middle of one or are you later in one? And again, the historical record shows that that different sectors will be either outperforming or underperforming in large part. Um, uh, dependent on the, on that primarily. Interesting. So for, for our listeners, give a practical example of what you might own at different stages of the cycle. Yeah. So just to give an example, um, so there are, there's a set of sectors that we would consider to be early cycle that would include things like consumer discretionary technology, uh, communication services as well. That tend to do well, um, you know, in the very early part of the cycle, uh, coming out of recessions, and these are types of sectors that do well when uh, growth is actually pretty slow, uh, but there's, um, you know, interest rates are low and there's plenty of liquidity um, in the economy. And the reason for why these sectors tend to do well when growth is um, is um, is not very strong. Uh, is also the reason why they're called growth sectors. And these are companies that tend to grow their sales and earnings very fast, even when the economy is not that hot. And so when that is the case, investors are willing to pay up to invest in these types of companies. And that causes them to perform really well in the early parts of the cycle. Uh, the flip side is that when you move to the late um, part of the cycle, the late stages of the cycle, uh, when um, the economic expansion has um, turned a little bit broader in terms of uh, you know hitting different parts of the economy, interest rates are higher, inflation is a little bit higher. Um, here we have a different set of sectors that tends to do better. We call them late cycle sectors. Um, so things like energy, materials, industrials, uh, sectors that are related to um, to commodities, uh, for instance, uh, they tend to they tend to do better because they um, they're more sensitive to um, essentially the, the the higher inflation and the, um, and the being linked to resources. Whenever the economy is running hot, there's a lot of demand for resources, and so these sectors tend to do better. And uh, the growth sectors. Uh, maybe take a back seat when you get to the late stages of the cycle because you have you know higher rates, higher inflation, and investors can find growth more easily across the economy, and so they don't need to pay up as much to invest in these companies. 
and so you talked about the uh, uh, a positive growing economic cycle. What happens when the economic cycle slows down or goes into recession? Yeah, that's yes. uh, sorry. That's um, the, the next uh, chapter for the economy is uh, exactly when we go into recession. And now you have a different set of sectors, which we call defensives, uh, things like um, you know utilities, consumer staples, uh, healthcare. Uh, these are companies whose cash flows tend to be very stable and relatively insensitive to the um, you know to the phases of the business cycle. Uh, just because these companies sell types of products that are considered to be essential. And uh, the, so demand remains stable, regardless of whether the economy is doing well or not so well. Um, and so when the economy is in a contraction or in a recession, uh, investors are looking for safety. And so the, um, you know, the, the, the fact that these companies produce cash flows that are very stable becomes very attractive. And so investors tend to uh, seek refuge into these companies, and that's why they tend to outperform during economic contractions. Yeah, and I would just add that, you know, for for, for the purposes of this, we're, you know, we're talking in sort of average terms over multiple market cycles. But it is important to point out that each individual cycle definitely has nuances um, and and other factors that come into play that might throw off these historical patterns a little bit. So that's one of the things that certainly keeps uh, uh, active managers like ourselves on our toes. Um, but um, as Soro laid out, you know, there's there's enough evidence over multiple cycles that you know we we think that that generally holds true for the most part in terms of um, you know how how those different sectors move through the cycle. So while so I think what you're saying is that the big idea here is that while each business cycle may be a little bit different, that fundamentally you think there's an opportunity uh, to produce excess returns by adjusting your portfolio based on where we are in the economic cycle. Is that correct? Yeah, I would say that's a good way of putting it. Um, and we certainly lay out an example of what that would look like in the paper. Um, you know, using um, for, for the economic cycle, we use, um, you know, in, uh, indicators provided by the conference board that date back for, for several decades um, so again, covering multiple different economic cycles um, and looking for sort of crossing points between what are known as coincident indicators or sort of how the economy is doing today versus leading indicators in terms of what, you know, where the economy is headed in the future. And that's that's the what we use to determine the different stages of the cycle um, and, as we discuss it in this paper. Interesting. So if you go back and look at all this research that you did, I assume that you you did an analysis to say if all of this is implemented correctly, uh, what the Im the improvement in performance over time might be in terms of both uh, percentage annual returns or uh, uh, or in cumulative dollars. Sure. Yeah. Part of the paper focused on this, uh, and we uh, we presented a hypothetical portfolio that would follow a sector rotation strategy uh, that would essentially. Um, you know, allocate uh, the entire portfolio to different sets of sectors depending on where we uh, we think we are in the business cycle, based on the um, those economic indicators that Carl was talking about. And uh, we ran this hypothetical portfolio uh, between um, the big, uh, February of 1990 through November of 2020, so roughly 30 years of history. And what we found was that uh, this um, hypothetical portfolio 
um, would have achieved an annualized return of 14.4% uh, before fees. And that would compare to just 10.4% for the S&P 500. So um, uh, an outperformance of 4% per year, uh, which uh, would have you know, compounded quite a bit over time. So just to give you an idea, um, $1 million invested in the sector rotation portfolio in February of 1990 uh, would have grown to uh, over $63 million in 2020. Uh, the same amount of money invested in the S&P 500 would have grown to just 21 million. So, um, you know, that's a $42 million difference in the, in the ending amount of that portfolio. Um, and an additional, um, you know, uh, information that we found is that, um, you know, the performance of this hypothetical sector rotation portfolio uh, outperformed the, the index also from a risk-adjusted perspective. So we looked at um, you know, things like alpha, uh, sharp ratios, uh, information ratios. And uh, in all of those cases, um, the, the hypothetical sector rotation portfolio did better than the passive index. That's pretty impressive results. Uh, I think the first, but uh, we have a, a broad set of uh, financial planners on, in our audience on the call. Uh, and I think the first question is, it sounds great, but is it really appropriate? Uh, is the style of active management really appropriate for my clients? Could you give us some thoughts on that? Well, I mean, I would say that, um, for, first of all, one, one comment would be, uh, you know, about how we define the strategy in the paper um, to be, um, you know, we, we had to be, pretty simplistic in the way that we define the business cycle just to keep things simple. Uh, the reality is that, um, you know, figuring out where you are in the business cycle can be more complicated. And uh, when, when we do it in practice, we're not just looking at, you know, the, the um, leading economic indicator and coincident economic indicator that uh, Carl was mentioning, uh, but we look at a much broader set of indicators and, um, you know, it's a, it's a task that requires, you know, it's part science and part, you know, art for sure. Um, so in reality, it's uh, tends to be a little more complicated than that. Um, and then an additional comment that I would make is that this hypothetical portfolio that we came up with, um, could be considered to be very aggressive, uh, meaning that, um, you know, we would rotate, you know, a hundred percent of that portfolio into just a few sectors, say three or four sectors, depending on um, where the, um, you know, in which, you know, part of the cycle we were. And that, that may not be considered to be suitable as a, as a client's core portfolio, uh, just because it doesn't, um, you know, it's not a very well diversified portfolio and it's, uh, it's very aggressive in, in, in the way that it pursues the sector rotation strategy. Uh, so what we did, we also looked at um, a potential core and satellite approach where we, um, we use this hypothetical sector rotation strategy as a satellite for, you know, 15% satellite of an otherwise passive and well-diversified portfolio across, um, you know, uh, many different asset classes, uh, including um, U.S. equities, international equities, commodities, uh, you know, different types of fixed income. Um, and what we found is that even when you only use the, the sector rotation strategy as a satellite for just 15% of your overall portfolio, 
uh, it's still it can still be very beneficial. Um, uh, just to give you some numbers, we we ran this uh, be because of data limitations. We could only start this in February of 1993, uh, and we also ran it through November 2020. Uh, we found that the uh, the portfolio would have returned 8.66% um, a year uh, compared to 8.05% for for an equivalent, uh, you know, entirely passive portfolio. So that's still, you know, obviously much less than the 400 basis points of our performance for the for the um, for the um, sectorization portfolio as a whole, but that's still 61 basis points a year. Um, of, of our performance that would compound over time and, and eventually over a period of you know 30 years would make you know quite a big difference in the um, in the um, you know in the overall growth of the portfolio. A question that uh, that often comes up when we're talking to financial planners and financial advisors about their investment strategies is uh, what what is the right security to use when employing uh, or implementing a strategy. So for this particular analysis that you did, uh, does it make any difference whether an advisor uh, chooses to employ mutual funds or ETFs or individual securities? Do you have a preference for one versus another? So we, we've had a strong preference for ETFs, exchange-traded funds, really dating back to the inception of these strategies for us, which, like I said, goes, goes back to 2002. Um, all of the reasons that I think are pretty well known now weren't as well known back then. You know, ETF adoption has really taken off, I would say, in the last, you know, five to, to maybe 10 years. Um, but going back 15 to 20 years, like like I'm talking about, ETFs were, were used far less. Um, but just the, the lower expenses on average, um, the tax efficiency and from a capital gain standpoint, all of those types of things um, from an active standpoint, we think really lend... Um, tilt the scales, I should say, in favor of using ETFs over mutual funds. Um, and, you know, I, I think in our experience, like, as I was mentioning, that we like to think of ourselves as early adopters. I mean, uh, not a lot of people were using ETFs back in the early 2000s. Um, the, the interesting thing is, um, even though a lot of new ETFs have just come on the market in the past few years, uh, these individual sector ETFs are some of the oldest that are out there. They date back to the to um, 1998, actually, is when sector ETFs arrived on the scene. And so just a few years later is when we started to implement them um, as we created a strategy there. And and as I mentioned, we just think they have advantages over, uh, you know, typical mutual funds that carry higher expenses. Um, they may have holding periods as far as back-end loads and things like that, which make it more challenging when you have to execute trades for, from an active standpoint and, and those sorts of considerations. So, um, you know, as I said, it's been our experience. And I think if you, we would certainly encourage anyone else who's thinking about this, that, you know, ETFs um, seem to be um, certainly preferable when you're trying to implement this sort of approach. Uh, and as you pointed out, ETFs haven't been around as long as mutual funds and obviously single securities. Um, but clearly, based on your comments, they've got some efficiencies. Uh, is there a sufficient breadth and depth of, of ETFs to choose from today uh, to be able to um, uh, put together a, a comprehensive portfolio? Absolutely. All of the major asset classes are, are thoroughly covered by ETFs, uh, different providers. There's a, I think there are a couple thousand ETFs out there now, you know, covering Again, all the major asset classes, equities, fixed income, commodities, 
Um, you know, like I said, for us, the individual sectors of the S&P 500 were available starting in, you know, 98. So as we started creating our strategy, they were already out there. What we've certainly noticed since then um, is that they've taken, you know, individual sectors and, and started carving them into more specific exposures, sometimes um, industries within sectors. Um, there are thematic ETFs out there. So there's a lot of different things to choose from. I think, again, for these purposes, we were keeping it relatively straightforward and, and referring uh, specifically to sectors that cover um, the 11, part, 11 sectors of the S&P 500 index. Um, and, and that's what we were using um, to make our case in this paper. So we basically said we've basically done a, a paper here that uh, uh, does a very good job of outlining outlining the issues that need to be considered uh, around implementing a sector rotation strategy and the conclusions uh, that you've described suggest that this is a, uh, a very effective way to improve returns on a client's portfolio uh, and, and can be constructed in such a way as to, to be suitable for uh, a client's portfolio. Um, so that all sounds pretty good to, to, the, to the listener. Uh, I guess the big question is, uh, we have the benefit here that you've been doing this for almost 20 years. Uh, so this isn't just academic research. This has actually been informed by a good amount of experience. I think the question that most folks are going to ask is what's going to be involved in actually doing this if one of our listeners wanted to try to do this themselves? Yeah, you're right. I mean, I think, you know, certainly for us, it was it was a commitment of, of different types of resources back then in, in terms in order to be able to effectively implement an active strategy. We, you know, we do have an investment team um, the, currently with, with six people on it. You know, we have four investment um, uh, professionals, analysts, as well as two full time traders. Um, there, there is some technology that's involved in terms of uh, rebalancing software that we use to to execute trades as, as, uh, as they go off. Um, and there are other things that go into the process. You know, we, we spend a lot of time as a group uh, discussing um, the business cycle and, and where, you know, the, the current evidence shows or indicates that we are and, and those types of things. So um, it, it is a commitment of resources. I think what we tried to do in this paper was simplify things a little bit um, so that, you know, someone who hasn't been doing this and is, is considering it can perhaps you know take a look at, at the approach that we laid out, which is um, you know maybe not getting uh, quite as far <laughs> into into the weeds in, in some cases, and 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 in the case of the economic cycle, backing up and really focusing on um, a couple of different indicators. I mean, and that would probably be one thing that that could help people is, is to kind of simplify initially if they're thinking about doing this. Um, Soro, I don't know if you have anything else to add along those lines. No, that that sounds good. Uh, I would just, yeah, maybe caution uh, readers of the paper uh, about the fact that, um, yeah, what we did here was um, meant to provide an example of how this uh, type of um, investment approach can be useful. But the way that we, as I already mentioned, the way that we dissected the business cycle and identified the different phases uh, was done in a much, much simpler way and we would do it in practice. So um, I think uh, if you, um, you know, if, if, if people are thinking about trying to uh, implement the strategy on their own, I think, first of all, 
uh, what will be required is a lot of education about the business cycle. I wouldn't just you know blindly follow the definition of the business cycle that we provided in this paper, but um, I think a very good understanding of the economy and what drive business cycles and of different indicators to use would be um, you know a, a good starting point. Well, there you have it, Carl Soro. Thank you so much for being on the program today. It's always a pleasure to learn from you gentlemen. You've got considerable amount of experience doing this over the last 20 years. Um, for our listeners, thank you for joining us today. You've been listening to Four Advisors, the podcast for and about financial advisors. I'm your host, Peter McGrady. And if you have any questions about, about the work that they did on sector rotation and its value to portfolio performance, uh, please feel free to reach out to us. You can drop us a line at advisors at congresswealth.com, uh, and we'll try to get back to you with some answers as soon as possible. We'll also be posting a link to the, the research done uh, by Carl and Soro uh, on our website, uh, congresswealthadvisorsolutions.com, uh, and you'll be able to find it uh, uh, in the podcast section with this podcast. With that, thank you for listening, and we look forward to talking to you again soon.